have you ever been in a, an experience or in a situation where you were under a time crunch? It may be that you at some point in your life have played in competitive or organized sports. And maybe you were in a game, you were involved in a game that was coming down to the wire. And there was just very little time remaining for the outcome of the game to be determined. Perhaps you have had a project at work or maybe in school that was coming down to the wire and you had little time remaining to complete this project and you were feeling the pressure. You were under a time crunch. There wasn't much opportunity, much time left to get that project accomplished. My fall semester of my junior year, I was in my third semester of taking New Testament Greek at Bible College, and one of the major projects during that semester was a project entitled An Exegesis. This project is a project where we took a portion of the New Testament, usually pretty brief portion, and we were required to literally translate from the Greek, the Koine Greek, into English. You know, we couldn't just copy down the King James. We had to, to work on it ourselves and translate it. We had to select five key words from that passage and do an intense word study. You say, what does an intense word study consist of? We couldn't just open our Strong's Dictionary and write the definition. We had to consider the use of that Greek word throughout the New Testament. We had to consider the Septuagint use of that word. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. We had to consider classical usage of that word. How Aristotle and Plato and other Greek philosophers and authors and writers used that word. We had to take in the full spectrum of how that word is used historically. And then we had to diagram the passage. And if you've never seen a Greek diagram, how many of you liked diagramming in English? A few of you? The rest of you who didn't, you would really hate Greek diagramming. Um, you've maybe heard it said before that sometimes you'll read in the New Testament and you read verse after verse after verse after verse after verse after verse, and it's all one sentence. And that's correct many times. A Greek diagram on a, a Greek exegesis could take up several printed pages on, on your computer screen to diagram that one sentence or that one passage. And then we had to include appendices as far as just some other information. Believe it or not, I went to college back in the day where we, we didn't have thumb drives when I went to college, okay? I am that old. We had to save our, our projects on the computer on a three and a half inch floppy disk. How many of you know what I'm talking about? 
yeah, see, I'm that old, okay? And so I was preparing. I had worked ahead. I was ready. I had, I had turned in a rough draft of my project. Now I was just making some basic changes. And the age-old problem that happens with those type of drives at times happened. I had my paper that was nearly 30 pages of Times New Roman 12-point font. I stuck in my floppy disk and got that dreaded message. Your disk drive is corrupted. My project was gone. And this was at like 10 o'clock the night before it was due. I suddenly was under a time crunch to retype that entire project. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Have being under a time crunch. As we come to Luke chapter 10, and we're returning to a series we began at the beginning of last year through the gospel according to Luke, and I do intend to finish this series this year, we approach Luke chapter 10. And it's an interesting context because Jesus was starting to feel a time crunch. You may not realize it because we're only through nine chapters out of 24 in the gospel according to Luke. But we're already past the time when Jesus has set his face as a flint toward Jerusalem. He is making a journey toward Jerusalem for the final time. He's ministering as he goes. He's teaching as he goes. He's preaching as he goes. But he had, leading up to the time of his crucifixion, what he considered just a brief time remaining. He was under a time crunch. And being under a time crunch, Jesus made a decision. He had already previously sent the twelve two by two to different places, different regions and cities throughout Israel to preach the kingdom of God. Now Luke 10 opens by telling us that Jesus is selecting now 70 of the others. You do know, don't you, that Jesus had more than 12 followers. The 12 he had specially chosen for a specific purpose, but he had more followers than that. Now Jesus selects 70 others also, Luke 10 tells us, he is going to send them out two by two with a similar mission to go into cities, towns, and villages that he planned to go to later to preach the kingdom of God is near. To preach repentance. To preach forgiveness of sin. Why? Because he was under a time crisis. He felt he had little time remaining. Can I ask you this morning, as it relates to following Jesus, as it relates to serving him and being involved in ministry, do you ever feel the urgency of being under a time crunch? The reality today is that every moment we live, 
is another moment we no longer have, right? And for some of us, I'm not trying to be downer today, but for some of us, we have less time remaining than others should we be looking toward living a normal, average human life. I believe if you study the, the average lifespan today in the United States is actually increased into the 80s. But the truth of the matter is, if we're in that place or not, none of us truly know how much time is remaining. Let me ask you, biblically speaking, what do we know of that needs to happen still between this moment and the rapture? Do you know what the biblical answer is? Nothing. Jesus could call us home in the rapture before we leave this auditorium today. As far as we know, prophetically speaking, there is nothing else that God has revealed needs to take place before that event happens when the trump of God will sound, the voice of the archangel will shout, the Lord will come partially in the clouds and will call us to meet him. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall also go to meet them in the air and to be with the Lord forever. As far as we know, there is nothing that needs to take place between now and then. So, could we agree this morning that we have little time remaining? That we're under a time crunch? And I have to wonder, knowing he was under a time crunch, what did Jesus give these 70 to do? As you study this passage, which ranges from Luke 10, 1 to 24, you will find that Jesus gave three specific commands. And keep in mind, these were the commands that Jesus gave these 70 followers to do, to obey, in recognition that he had little time remaining. So today, I want to just preach this message, time remaining. What do we do as followers of Jesus Christ with little time remaining? I believe the text before us that includes these three commands to these 70 missionaries applies to us today. The context is different. Jesus had little time remaining because he was looking toward his crucifixion. We have little time remaining in recognition that Jesus could come at any moment. So, for every moment we live, we should live with an urgency that we don't know how much time is left. God the Father knows. We don't. So with urgency, we should live every moment of our lives in recognition that there is little time remaining. 
I've shared with you before from the day of the New Testament penmen. They believed they were living in the last days. We don't have to ask, are we living in the last days? The answer is yes. We have been for a while. We need to have urgency. And these commands that Jesus gave these 70 missionaries apply directly to us. And I believe with little time remaining, these are the commands that we should obsess ourselves with, that we should be urgent about. So what are they? Number one, would you note, with little time remaining, Jesus commanded them to pray. With little time remaining, Jesus commanded them to pray. To pray. Look at verses 1 and 2. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Now I don't know how it strikes you as you read that. With little time remaining, it may seem interesting that Jesus would begin with this command. There's little time remaining. We're in a time crunch. We need to have urgency. So let's pause, get alone with God the Father, and pray. I mean, does that strike you as a little interesting? It does me. As I thought about it, I thought about it in sports terms. I enjoy sports. I played organized sports every opportunity I had. Basketball, as far as play, is the love of my life as it comes to athletics. I really enjoyed basketball, desired to be good at it. And when you're on a basketball team, you may be in situations where you have little time remaining and the game is on the line. Consider you are on a team and you have gotten the ball. It may be through a rebound, it may be through a turnover, they've just made a basket. And your team is down two points with just seconds remaining. Let's say it's, it's through a rebound. The other team has taken a shot. They've missed. And you on your team have rebounded it. What is the very next thing you do? Gabe? You call a timeout. Right? If you've watched basketball, if you've basketball, if you've played basketball, if you're in that situation and you have a timeout remaining, don't call a timeout if you don't have one remaining. The other team has shot, you've rebounded the ball and there is seconds left and you're down two. The first thing you're taught to do is call a timeout. Why? Well, there, there are really a lot of reasons. Typically, there's some type of progression of the ball up the court to throw it in. But a big part of it is so that the team can get up with whom? The coach. And the coach is likely going to draw up a play. 
He's going to say, you're throwing the ball in, you're going to throw it into so-and-so, this pick is going to happen, this roll is going to happen, this guy with the ball is going to do X, Y, Z, so-and-so is going to get the shot with this long remaining, everybody crash, and he's going to determine, are we going to go for the two to tie, are we going to shoot the three to win? You're going to take a time out to get with the coach. Can I say it this way without being irreverent? Jesus tells us with little time remaining, you need to pray because you need to get with the Father. You need to get with the coach. You need to get with the captain. You need to get alone with God. Why? Would we have this perspective with little time remaining that this seems like an interesting command for Jesus to give? Perhaps it's because of our lax perspective on prayer. Have you ever found yourself or even verbalized this thought? Is prayer really all I can do? I mean, I know so-and-so is hurting, and they've told me to pray for them, but really, is that the limit of what I can do? All I can do is pray? Why would we have that perspective? How lax we can be as it relates to prayer. You know, I think about that team that calls a timeout. They get together with the coach for direction, for inspiration, and here Jesus was, knowing they were under a time crunch, knowing they had little time remaining. Verse 1 reveals that he had already sent them, but in sending them, he told them to get together with God and pray. Why did they get, need to get together with God and pray? Well, notice what he told them. Number one, because the harvest is great. The harvest is great. Jesus, as he had done on other occasions, is, is taking this perspective on the situation. He uses the analogy of a field that is ready to harvest. And you know this to be true. If a field is ready to harvest, what do you need to do? You need to get the harvest in. If you don't get the harvest in urgently, what is going to happen pretty quickly? You're going to lose it. I remember once hearing a pastor and author I've mentioned before, Paul David Tripp, share an illustration of, I think it was his family owned like a, a hay farm. And... There was urgency about harvesting that hay. Not just cutting it and gathering it in the bales, but getting it into shelter because if that hay was rained on very quickly, it would spoil. So their, their typical goal was in three days. They had to get that hay cut up, get it baled, get it into the the bales of hay and get it into shelter and they they had chosen this particular year three days where there wasn't supposed to be rain and they were busy doing the job they got to day three and they had taken a break for some lemonade and suddenly though it wasn't in the forecast it started to rain 
and they lost some of that harvest. Jesus says we need to pray. We have little time remaining because the harvest is great. And friends, it can be easy, can't it? To look out on our world. And we can be guilty of, of just not being urgent about it. And it may be because of what we read earlier in Second Peter chapter 3. We'll look at how much time has passed since he gave his promise. And we may not scoff his promise as the scoffers do, but we can be less urgent than we ought to be because time. We, we have time. But I think we can also take this perspective of, let's call it discouragement. We look at the world around us. We see what's going on in the world. We can even think, wow, it must be getting really close to when Jesus is going to return because how could it get any worse than what it is now? And we can be so overwhelmed by the greatness of the harvest that rather than being inspired to the work we're discouraged i wonder if you've ever felt that way but can i share with you this morning jesus used it as a form of inspiration to urgency but also encouragement friends this is the perspective we should take if the harvest is great for those who are believers and in followers of jesus the greatness of human need represents the greatness of our opportunity We should not grow discouraged by a world getting darker. We should not grow discouraged by a community and a state and a country around us getting darker. You know this to be true. In darkness, the light shines all the much brighter. We have the truth. We know the light of the world, and he has shared his light with us and told us, ye are the light of the world, so let your light so shine before men. Friends, the, the harvest being great should not overwhelm and discourage us. It should encourage us, because if that need is so great, our opportunity is just as great. He told them to pray because the harvest is great. He told them to pray because the laborers are few with such a great harvest more workers are needed and more awareness and concentration among current workers is needed for the work friends if the harvest is so great and we recognize and know that there is you're under a time crunch when the harvest has come then we need to understand if the harvest is so great and if it passes without us reaping we're just going to lose out then we need to understand we need more workers isn't it interesting that Jesus had previously sent the 12 two by two, but now under a time crunch, he selects 70 more followers to send out. Jesus didn't leave the work for the 12. And friends, can I share with you today, it's not God's intention to leave the work with a select few. 
It's not God's intention to leave the work with the full-time ministers. It's not God's intention to leave the work with those involved in ministry in some way. It is God's intention that all of us who believe Him and know Him and love Him to get involved in the work. So Jesus said, pray because the laborers are few and we need more workers in the harvest. We need more urgency among those who are already working in the field. And then, Jesus told them to pray that God would send the laborers. I'll tell you, I, I've known this text for a long time. I've known that verse. But I had a a revelation in the sense that God spoke to me in a new way through this text this week as I've studied. The, the, the language here is interesting. The Greek word behind that word send is much more forcible than the word send is in English. It has the idea of to push forward to thrust out you get the idea that god is standing behind one of his followers who needs to get busy harvesting pushing them to go out into the field and to reap a harvest and spurgeon had an interesting statement he said it's the same word which is used for the expulsion of a devil from a man possessed. If you go back in the Gospels where Jesus sent the demons, legion, out of the madman of Gadara into the pig, it's the same word used there. Jesus thrust out, he pushed those demons out of the man and out into the swine. It's the same word. And Spurgeon said this, It takes great power to drive a devil out. It will need equal power from God to drive a minister out to his work. And here's what I took from that for me this week. I can't make anybody else do it. I can't even make myself do it. You know who has to do that work? God does. And friends, I can... I can do all the things. I can, I can study, and I can, I can listen to others, and I can learn methods and ways of going about reaching people and all those things, getting involved in the harvest, but ultimately it has to be God's work in my life and my obedience to Him. And the same is true for you. I can say till I'm blue in the face, or other preachers can get up here and say till they're blue in the face, you need to be busy winning souls. But guess what? Hearing it over and over again isn't going to change anything. God has to work in your heart and mind, and we have to respond. We have to obey. It's God who does that work. Jesus told a parable that I think relates well to this thought. It's found in Matthew 21 chapter 20 verses 1 through 16 it's the parable of the householder who went out multiple times throughout the day to get laborers for his harvest do you remember that parable 
the householder went at the beginning of the day to the market and he found some laborers who were just standing around. Why, what are you doing? We need, we need somewhere to go to work. Okay, come, I'm going to take you. He went again at the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and then the last hour of the day. And he did the same thing. And, and to those toward the end of the day, he asked, why are you here idle while the day is still, there's still time left in the day. Come and work in my field. And at the end, he paid every worker, those who had only been there an hour and those who had been there all day, he paid every worker a day's wages. And here are the applications that I think relate. First and simply this, God rewards labor done for him. Isn't that true? God rewards labor done for him. If, if we do what God sends us to do, he'll reward that labor. But then I love this thought. Don't miss this. It's not too late to begin or to begin again. Maybe you're here today and you go, well, pastor, you're talking about how much under a time crunch we are. Maybe you're even someone who would say, Pastor, I'm in a time crunch regardless because I'm just later in life. And I know I'm under a time crunch. I, I know if God, if Jesus delays anymore, I don't have much time left anyway. Jesus, that householder, went out even in the last hour of the day and brought laborers and rewarded them for their labor. Maybe for one reason or another, you'd say it's too late. No, friends, we're still here. Jesus hasn't called us home in the rapture yet. The Spirit of God is still powerfully indwelling those who are his followers. We still have the Word of God that's just as quick and just as powerful as it ever was. It has not lost any bit of its power. That means that it is not too late to begin. And maybe it's something you've been urgent about in the past and you've not been as urgent about. It's not too late to begin again. With little time remaining, God, Jesus, commanded them to pray. Pray for workers. Pray for the work. And that's what we should be busy doing. Number two, I want you to see this. With little time remaining, Jesus commanded them to pray, but then with little time remaining, Jesus commanded them to go. It's obvious already in verse number one, because he chose 70 also that he sent out two by two. But then look at verse three. Go your ways. Go your ways. Here are these that Jesus just commanded, pray. The harvest is great, you need to pray. The laborers are few, you need to pray. Pray that God will send out laborers into his harvest. And friends, it's no accident that here was Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, all God and all men, man, commanding them to go. How did he command them to go? If you read through this passage, I believe there are several characteristics, but it begins with this sense of urgency. Often when our family is preparing to leave the house to go somewhere, it is quite a chore. 
it's challenging to get ready and get out the door. We have five children. The oldest just turned nine last week. The youngest is seven months. It's hard at times. Often, Steph and I will talk about whether it's coming here for church or going out for something else. If we're all going together, what time do we need to leave? And it doesn't seem to matter how much ahead of time we state the time to leave. It's hard to get out the door by that time. And sometimes it's simply children. And what I mean by that is Steph and I are ready, and we, we, we've made sure the kids have have had all the opportunity and we've helped them and and we might be headed to the door and say let's go oh i need to go to the bathroom oh i need to get a book i need to get a toy i need to do this daddy i didn't get my shoes on daddy daddy i didn't brush my teeth daddy i didn't do this i didn't do that daddy i'm not ready i'm not ready to go it can be challenging but jesus told them go there's little time remaining we need to be urgent about this you need to go and notice how he told them to go there are several characteristics number one he told them to go compassionately go your ways as what lambs among wolves lambs among wolves now notice, he didn't say, hey, uh, a wolf or a pack of wolves is coming to, to attack the flock who are kept up in the fold. That's not what's going on here, is it? He tells them to go out, and the, the sheep are going two by two out toward a place where the packs of wolves are. And this is why I say compassionately. Because often in Christianity, we see a tendency to attack. We see a tendency in Christianity at times to berate, to browbeat, to speak very unkindly unlovingly to people who are lost headed for hell friends can I remind you today that is not what Jesus did and it is not what he calls us to do we are to be loving and compassionate in our witness for Jesus Christ. But then I would say along with that, he told them to go courageously. Hey, if you're going to be sheep going out among wolves, you know what that's going to take? That's going to take some courage. I, I, I could be wrong, but I doubt seriously a lamb or a sheep has ever knowingly walked into the midst of a pack of wolves. I know sheep are kind of dumb, but I'm pretty sure that's not something a sheep naturally does. Pretty sure if a sheep knows that there are wolves about, they go in the other way. But Jesus called us to go as sheep, which, by the way, he 
defined in Matthew chapter 16, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. He told us to do that, and that takes courage. Friends, it takes courage to speak to others of their need of Christ. It takes courage to engage a co-worker or a schoolmate on a, in a gospel conversation. It takes courage to walk up to a total stranger and question them of their need for Christ. It takes courage to do those things. He told us to go courageously. He told us to go, thirdly, confidently. Look at verse number four. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes. Salute no man by the way. As he had told the twelve when he sent them out, he, he told these, don't, don't take a bag of money, don't take food, don't take an extra set of clothing or shoes. Is this Jesus teaching us not to use our, our wisdom, not to use common sense, not to prepare? No. But he is teaching us to be confident in something other than ourselves and our own resources. We're to be confident in whom? In what? In him. How easy it is for us to look for reasons, or for, if I can use the word, excuses, not to go. We're not ready. I don't have what I need. I, I, I need to do this, that, and the other. I haven't been to enough soul winning seminars. I haven't had enough training and teaching on on how to answer people. I haven't, I haven't had all the, all the training that I need to be able to answer every question that someone might ask. Okay, there's nothing wrong with preparation, but friends, can I say this today? If you continue in that vein, you will never reach a point where you feel prepared enough. We need to get busy going, confident in Him. In verses 5 through 8, we won't read the verses for sake of time. I encourage you to do it on your own. But what you find here is Jesus teaching them to go courteously. Find the hospital per hospitable person. Stay with them. Let your peace rest on that place. Whatever they put before you, eat and drink. Jesus is talking about having a kindness, a, a courtesy about us as we interact with others. And friends, again, this goes along with, with what he teaches us, what he did and what he has commanded us to do. Even when he commands us to be ready always to give an answer to every man, he tells us to do that with meekness, with gentleness, with a strength that is under control. And then, finally, to go with a companion. In verses 9 through 16, he begins by saying, Heal the sick. Say to them, The kingdom of God has come nigh to you. He talks about the cities that receive them and the cities that don't. He, he pronounces woes on those cities in whom great works had been done, yet they had not repented. They hadn't received the truth. And how those cities, in comparison to the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, would experience a greater, a greater punishment, a greater judgment because of the greater opportunity they had. 
What are we to take from this, though? We're to take from it that truth. How, how can we do what he calls us to do? We can't do it on our own. Can't do it in our own strength. So he has sent us with a companion. And I don't just mean that second person to go with us. He has sent us with his Holy Spirit. Friends, if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, you already have that power that he told his disciples would come. You already have everything you need through the Holy Spirit. With little time remaining, Jesus commanded them to pray. He commanded them to go. And then thirdly, and I want you to see this this morning as we conclude, with little time remaining, Jesus commanded them to rejoice. I love this. Those 70 came back after they had completed the mission that Jesus sent them for. And they came back excited. When Jesus had sent the 12 two by two, he specifically told them he was sending them with the power to cast out demons. As you read through this text, we don't find that here. Jesus did not specifically tell the 70 that he was sending them with that power to cast out demons. But when they came back, they came back praising that they had the power while they were out to cast demons. But notice, I love this, because there was a humility in these 70. They came back saying, we were able through your name. They gave him the glory for it. But then Jesus did something interesting. He tells them in verse 18, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you power to tread on scorpions and serpents, power over the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. But then look at what he says in verse number 20. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not. Wait, Jesus told us not to rejoice? In a sense. What, did Jesus, what was Jesus teaching them? Listen to me carefully and don't miss this because I believe this will help a lot of us. When is it that we usually spend time rejoicing? We might say, well, when life is good, Right? I rejoice. In ministry, when ministry is fruitful, oh man, praise God. And Jesus told them here, there will be fruit in ministry. That's what verses 18 and 19 are about. You have an enemy called Satan. He fell as lightning from heaven to earth. Friends, that enemy still lives, he still walks, he still roams the earth, looking as a lion does for whom he may devour. He is still opposing us as we do God's work. And there are, there are times when it seems he has the upper hand. Friends, there are times when ministry seems dry. 
there are seasons of fruitlessness. It happens. In fact, those who continued following Jesus, you think about what they came back from. Oh, Jesus, we preached, we cast out demons, people received the word, people responded to the word. But guess what? There was going to be a time after Jesus left, and he taught them about this. Read John 14, read John 15, when they were going to be arrested and they were going to be dragged before tribunals and before courts and before magistrates. And they would be beaten and they would be imprisoned and they would be killed for his name. That was going to happen. And so Jesus taught them an important truth. It's fine to rejoice over the blessings we should. It's fine to rejoice over the fruit we should. It's fine to rejoice in the ministry successes we should. But Jesus was teaching them something very pertinent to their lives and to our lives today. We should rejoice not only in the ministry successes and the seasons of fruitfulness. We should rejoice always. Do you remember what Paul taught the Philippian church? Rejoice in the Lord what? Always. And again, I say rejoice. He wrote to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, rejoice evermore. And Jesus tells us exactly how we can do that in verse number 20. Look at it again. And let's read the whole verse. Jesus said, Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. Don't make that the focus of your rejoicing, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Do you know what will carry you through the good times and the bad times? Do you know what will carry you through the seasons of ministry successes and ministry defeats? Do you know what will carry you through the seasons of fruitfulness and the seasons where the fruit seems to be lacking? How can I rejoice all the time? How can I find joy in the Lord through all the seasons? Because if you're honest... There are seasons of good and there are seasons of bad in your life. If you're honest, there are seasons of success and seasons of disappointment. If you're honest, there are seasons that seem very fruitful and there are seasons that seem kind of dry. How can you rejoice regardless? If you know Jesus is your Savior, you can rejoice in this. My name's written in heaven. Friends, does that give you enough reason to rejoice today? You can rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You can rejoice today 
that God sent Jesus to this world, that Jesus lived the perfect life you can't, that Jesus died the death you deserve, that he rose again from the grave. And if you had been the only person who needed it, if you had been the only person who would ever respond to it, he would have done it just for you. And you can rejoice that he saved you. And you can rejoice that regardless of how people respond, if you follow him, if you pray, if you go, there is coming a day when you'll stand before him. And your name will be written not only in the Lamb's book of life, but it will be written in some other books. Perhaps you'll hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I have had the opportunity over the past month or so to get to know a man who's under a time crunch. He's been given a short time to live due to lung cancer. He's just turned 87 years old. I have had the opportunity to get to know him and know his story a little bit. He's a member of another church here in town. And he shared with me in the midst of knowing he has little time remaining what he's doing. He still attends church faithfully. He still meets with a group of men from his church to study God's word every Thursday morning at Bojangles for breakfast. He still attends and leads an Alcoholics Anonymous group that he's been attending and leading for many years where he has had and continues to have the freedom to share Jesus and has seen many come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior through his involvement in that group. He's 87 years old, knows he has just a short time remaining, and he shared with me as I spent a little time with him just this past week that some others, even at his church, have, have commented to him, how in the world do you have the attitude you have knowing that there is cancer growing in your body and will soon take your life? How in the world do you have such a good attitude? Why are, how are you even here? How are you even doing what you're doing? And he shared with me, I, I don't understand why they think it's so amazing. I know where I'm going. But until he calls me, he's given me a work to do. And I'm going to do it. He's under a time crunch. But that to him has only increased his urgency. Friends, what will knowing and recognizing you have little time remaining do for you? Jesus commanded them, pray, go, rejoice. How will you respond?